all of us know what it is to feel deep down when the world around us just seems unfair. Uh, all of us have probably been in those circumstances where it just seems as though no matter what you did, it wasn't going to be treated fairly, where whether it was an employer who just decided they didn't like you, and no matter how hard you tried, they didn't like anything you did. We've probably all been there. Or, um, we've, we've been in situations that, that we just learned that lesson that if we had kids, I think all of us, all of us who have ever had children at least once have looked at that beautiful, innocent face and said with the earnestness, all the earnestness that we could, honey, life isn't fair, right? Because it's one of those basic lessons that none of us likes to learn, but all of us ends up learning, and that is that life isn't fair. In fact, one of the most humbling aspects of it is when we realize that when we're a parent or when we're an employer or when we're in a position of authority, frankly, we're not always fair. We try, but fairness is, it's, it's like picking up mercury. It's sometimes hard to get hold of. And, and I'm convinced that, that nothing can be quite so exhausting and demotivating and, and paralyzing as living in a context where it just seems like it's not fair, it's not right, it's not just. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter. It's not fair. And that creates a special kind of fatigue, what I've called injustice fatigue. That, that we, we, we see things and they're just not fair. Right. We're going to look today at 2 Thessalonians. It's a little book in the Bible. It follows, mysteriously, 1 Thessalonians. Of course, there are some scholars who believe that it was first. That's why they called it second. I don't know. It's, it's a great little book in the Bible written to the church at Thessalonica, which was one of the most impressive cities of the first century. It was a port. It was on the road that connected the city of Rome to the Orient, the east. It, it was a massive, beautiful city full of all kinds of commerce, and it was a, a where a church was located that the Apostle Paul had established in Acts chapter 17. In fact, it appears to be one of his favorite churches. In Acts 17, it says that he, he came upon Thessalonica with his, his missionary team, if you will, and they preached in the synagogue, and there was a response. But, but, but especially the Jews in the community were offended and chased him out of town and even followed him, continuing to create trouble for him. It was a place where there had been really good things, but also really bad things. And 1 Thessalonians, the first letter, is famous because it talks about what we like to refer to as the rapture, that time when Jesus would return to earth and invite all of his, his people back to join him in heaven. It is an incredibly significant passage if you believe that there is a, a biblical rapture, and, and that's in 1 Thessalonians. But this book, Second Thess, is probably written only a few months later because something has happened in this beautiful church, and it's so concerned him that the Apostle Paul has written this follow-up letter. Now, the theologians believe that what caused Paul to write this letter was that someone had informed the church, either through preaching or a letter or whatever, that the day of the Lord had already come. Now, we're Gentile, Goyim, so we don't, we don't recognize that name so well. 
But in the Old Testament prophets, the day of the Lord was representative of when God would bring judgment on the earth and, and when God would make things right and that the people who love God would go through incredibly difficult times. And apparently what we see in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, we'll look at next week, is that the, the Thessalonian church had been told that the day of the Lord had already come. And so Paul writes this letter to inform them about this prophetic material. But that's not the pastoral need of the, the, of the Thessalonians. In other words, while theologically there was a question about the eschatological end times, you know, kind of stuff, there was something pastorally that was happening to them. And, and I think, I think they'd grown weary. I think they'd grown weary. Because in chapter 3, there's a wonderful little verse that I think summarizes the whole book. And, and I memorized it in the King James. It says, don't grow weary with doing good. Don't get tired of doing the right thing. Don't, don't get exhausted so that you kind of level off. I have now reached 65. I am eligible for Medicare. How cool is that? I mean, you know, it's got to be good, right? It's from the government. So, I, I can say this. One of the things that happens when we get older is we can kind of flip a switch and say, you know, I've done it. I'm kind of tired. I'm going to let those young'uns carry the ball. I, 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 I've, I've had all that enthusiasm stuff, and it makes me tired. I'm just going to kind of show up and put an off, a check in the offering. And, but I, I'm going to let those younger people do the, do the hard stuff. We've grown weary. Some of us have checked out. Now, I'm, I'm proud of this congregation. It's always had older men and women who are, are terrors for Christ. I mean, they, they, just, they just scorch earth wherever they go for the sake of Jesus. And you see them in our ministries, and you see them in the community, and I could name names, and many of you are thinking of them. But it's sometimes a temptation to kind of grow weary of doing good. And that's why this book is particularly applicable. So the theme is don't get tired, don't grow weary of doing good. And today we're going to look specifically at injustice fatigue. So turn at, in your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Thessalonians. It's after 1 Thessalonians, which is, after, is before Timothy and before Titus and before Hebrews. So it's somewhere in there. Turn, if you will, to 2 Thessalonians, if you don't mind. Let's look at the Bibles together. By the way, I know it's not necessarily cool to make you look at the Bible, but I want you to look at your Bible. Because you know what? I want you to do it again tomorrow not just today. And I want you to do it on Tuesday. And let me get really radical. I want you to open it again on Wednesday and Thursday. You get the theme here? Open your stinking Bibles. Now, if it's on your phone, that's fine. I like electronic Bibles. Just look at your Bible. Please? Please? Second Thessalonians chapter 1. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very Pauline kind of greeting. We ought, you deserve, we can't help but always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, 
And rightly so, because why? Your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Notice that the normal expectation of the Christian life is always progress. Faith is not something you get once and get over it, right? You, you place your faith and hope in Jesus as, your, as the Lord and Savior of your life, as the, the God, the Son of God who came to earth and died on the cross for the sins of the world, resurrected on the third day so that all who trust in Him have an eternal life. You do that when you first embrace Jesus, but that's not like you get all of Jesus you need, Right? That's not like you get all the faith you need. In fact, what does life teach you? It takes more faith every day because life keeps throwing you these crazy curves, right? I, I was pretty good at faith when I was young because life was simple. Other people fed me, right? It's easy to trust God for your food and your, your lifestyle when someone else is doing it all. Mom and dad were really good at it. I trusted God. You know, it was easy. It was easy to trust God for my health when I was healthy and not fat, and old, and balding, and let's make a list. I was still short. It's easy to trust God when you get where I'm going as life just keeps forcing you to learn to trust Him in a whole new way, and especially because of the brokenness that we live in in the world, right? How do you trust God when you unfairly lose your job? How do you trust God when someone you, you've staked your life on loving stops loving you? How, how do you trust God when the kids that you've, you would give your life for turn their back on you or on our Savior? How do you trust God in the difficulties of life? The Apostle Paul says, I can't help but be proud of you because your faith keeps growing, and you keep loving each other more. In fact, i got to tell you, it's, it's my experience. It's, it's easier to love when you're younger because you don't get hurt as much. You know, it was, it's, it's, in the 60s, it was teenagers and 20-somethings that had love ends. The old folks were saying, go away. I mean, because the longer we live, all that Love talk, you know, it's nice, but it's, it's easy to get disillusioned with people. And he says, but, but, but you keep growing in your faith. You keep growing in your love because that's what the Spirit of God intends to do in each of us, to continually resurrect more of that godlike essence that we were created with so that we reflect Him more in all of our lives. It wasn't intended to be static. So I'm proud of you for all those reasons. Verse 4, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and trials you're enduring. We boast about how well you've stuck with it. In fact, Acts chapter 17, the founding of the church, it said other Jews became jealous, so they rounded up some of the bad characters from the marketplace and formed a mob and started a riot in the city. And they rushed to Jason's house who had helped support the church in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out into the crowd. And they couldn't find them, so they dragged Jason out and he had to post bail just for being a believer. 
In chapter, in 1 Thessalonians 2, it says, uh, verse 14, for you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ. You suffered from your own countrymen, the same things that those churches suffered from the Jews. They, they stuck it out when things are hard. And, and men and women, it would be well for you and me to pray regularly for the persecuted church. I mean, we think we have it bad. We don't have it bad. There, there are Christians around the world who are constantly fearful of a knock on the door. They can't find employment because they follow Jesus. There, there are parts of the world today that our, our brothers and sisters in Christ long for what we complain about. And we dare not, we dare not care about them. Now, having encouraged them for the perseverance, in verse 5, he begins to assure them of justice. And this is where I, I believe that that fatigue they had with all the injustice is evident. Verse 5, all this is evidence. What's the evidence? Their faithfulness. Their perseverance, they're, they're, it is a demonstration. When, when, we are, when we live out our faith, we give evidence to what we claim, right? We give evidence to the reality of the gospel. It, it, it's not our living out that saves us, but our living out is evidence of what has saved us, and that is our faith in Christ. And all of this, our living it out is, is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. It, 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 it makes you look like what you claim, and therefore the gospel makes more sense to the world. Verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. God is just. But life isn't. If you look up justice in dictionaries, they do what they wouldn't let us do in grade school. Justice is the characteristic of being just. Really? Not helpful. So when you look for other synonyms, synonyms, it's easier for you to say. Put synonyms on your apple pie and it tastes much better. Synonyms, I'm sorry I've been gone. Bad things happen when I get rest. I apologize. Pray for Julie. When you, when you look for synonyms for righteousness and justice, it's things like beat that which is right or that which is fair. Now, I personally think fairness is a great word. The problem with, what's the problem with fairness? We all think what's fair is what's fair to us. It's so subjective. It's so rooted in our own opinion. I know that because I had children. That's not fair. You know, I mean, the reality is that most of us, whereas right implies a higher authority, right? It implies something that's greater than just my personal perspective, and it's rooted in the very character of God that He's just, that He's right. We live in a society that, that rejects that idea that there is a right standard. We live in a society that has declared that we know what it is, we'll let you know. We've rejected that God might be the source of what is right or, or that His Word is a source of what is right. And, and, and therefore, we've come more and more to a position in the world where I decide what is right. What's the problem with that? Whoever has the biggest stick wins. It always deteriorates into a power struggle. 
always deteriorates into a power struggle. That's why we're screaming so much. We've lost the sense that there might be something right rooted in a God who's triune and perfect in His justice and righteousness. Therefore, we all have to demand what's right, and that means just scream louder and, you know, and it's getting us nowhere. But Scripture says, and historically, we followers of Christ have said what is right is what's rooted in what God says is right. And as the character that we see in Christ and the word that He's spoken in Scripture that instructs us on what is right and just and fair. And the question is, are, are we committed to that? Are, are we committed to what's right? Are we gotten caught up in this fairness stuff? In other words, there is a danger when, when we stop going to Scripture to see what is right and good because it's rooted in the character of God and start listening to all the voices or even worse, our own feelings. Because in our subjectivity, we broken and sinful people start declaring we are better than God at knowing what's right and wrong. You know, the, the issue of social justice, the word justice is everywhere in our society and in the church and the body of believers. And, and I, get, I get emails from both sides. I get emails from people who are really committed on one side of the political spectrum and say, why don't you preach on this? And I get the ones from the other side who are really committed on the other side. Why don't you ever preach for this? You know what's ironic? Nobody ever asked me what I think. I'm the preacher for crying out loud. No one wants to know what I think because they've already decided. They heard it on Fox News or MSNBC or whichever one they listen to. They know what's right, and it's, it's the right thing, and we ought, to, we ought to hear more about that. Why aren't you uh, informing us about what's right about that? And um, I may sneak up and do more of that. But the first question is, where are you going to decide? What is just and right? Not what do you want. But what is right? And what is right not only as it relates to you, but what is right, notice the it, it, faith is always combined with love. What is right as it relates to other people? What is fair for everyone? Because that's the standard of Scripture. And when you ever have any doubt, God says, you know, do to others the way you'd want to be treated. How, how, what is right for that? One, one of the great aspects of this country is historically, it said we're going to stand for what is right for everyone. And according to the rule of law that we believe are ultimately rooted in Scripture, whether they were perfectly or not, we, we're going we're to try to do right by everyone. And that should still be our standard. And most of all, most of all by those of us who claim to love Jesus. He, he says, don't, you're, you're being persecuted, you're suffering, and it's not right. You're not being treated fairly, it's not right. You're, you're, you're being abused verbally, in some cases even physically, and it's not right. But what's the first point of encouragement? God is right. God is right. 
And men and women, if you try to find your peace and confidence in our government, God help you. God help you. It has never, ever been a source of peace and comfort because it's, it's filled with frailed people. It's, it, as Winston Churchill once said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. The, the reality is, it, 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 as long as it has humans, it, it, it should never be the focal point of our confidence. I'm deeply grateful to be here, but, but our Constitution's not the focal point of my faith. My faith is in Jesus Christ and the triune God who is ultimately right. And, and as, as believers, the, the more we reflect that rightness, the more we bring honor to who Jesus is. The, the more we demonstrate His grace, the golden rule, His justice, His, His caring and compassion, and true righteousness, the more we show who He is. I'll get to the, I need to move on. I'm losing control. He will give you relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. And then look what he says then. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. When does justice finally come? Ultimately, justice comes at the second coming. The second coming. This is not the rapture that is described in 1 Thessalonians 4 because there's judgment here. There's not judgment in the, ra- the coming of the rapture. We'll get into the eschatology stuff next week. But ultimately, God thinks, makes things right when Jesus, the king, the sovereign God, comes and rules on earth. It won't be right till then. Now, the wisdom literature of Scripture says that God has so ordained the world so that the world tends to grind out a form of justice. In other words, that God does bring justice in His time because that's the way He set up the world. But, but you and I both know that the reality is that in life, many times we don't experience justice. There are, there are Christians that are persecuted, right, and die for their faith. They don't experience justice in this earth. There are really bad people who seem to win. They don't experience the justice on this earth. Now, oftentimes it comes out, but the ultimate justice, according to the Apostle Paul, is when? When the Savior, the King, comes back and He sits on His throne and He dispenses that justice, which is an incredible source of encouragement to you and me, and that is that we don't lose heart with the fatigue of injustice because we know the King is coming and He will bring justice, right? But you know what else it does? It scares me to death because while I believe I am absolutely saved in Christ and I will spend eternity with Him, I also realize I will stand before my Savior and I'll have no defense for my disobedience. 1 Corinthians 3 says that the, the works that were not good will be burned up, but I'll be saved as though from the fire. But who, who wants to stand before the king of the universe? And you know what I'm saying? In other words, our salvation absolutely clears us. For we will spend eternity with him if we've placed our faith and hope in him. But surely that doesn't mean we can just live like crazy and it doesn't matter. Surely if you love Jesus, you want to hear well done, thou good and faithful servant, right? Which means you want to live 
justly, rightly, fairly. You want to demonstrate that you trust Him, and you want to demonstrate your love of Him. By the way, did you notice? I forgot to mention it in the service. I did in the first service. You could have both for both. You'd have heard the old sermon. That hope was left out in the first paragraph because they're struggling with their hope here. So he says, don't get, grow weary of the injustice. Why? Because God is just. And he will send his son to earth in the second coming. And, and he will, verse 8, punish those who do not know God, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, NIV, in my opinion, has made a big mistake. It makes those two sound like the same. If you look at the structure of the words, I believe they're two different groups. He will punish those who don't know God and those who did not obey the gospel, those who were ignorant and those who actively rejected. I personally believe there are different levels of punishment. I think there are different consequences for those who don't know as opposed to those who reject. I don't believe that Scripture teaches all who aren't saved will be treated the same way in eternity. But it does teach that all who don't know Christ will be separated from God in eternity. Look at the next verse. He will punish those who don't know and those who do not uh, obey the gospel. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord God and from the majesty of His power on the day He comes to be glorified. Now, I know the idea of hell is politically incorrect. But men and women, Scripture teaches that apart from the salvation that comes, from placing our faith and hope solely in Jesus Christ, we will spend eternity apart from God. Notice that he defines that eternal destruction as living outside of the presence of our Lord. We don't know all that that implies, but we do know it's separated from God. And what is the source of all that is good? God. So being separated from God will be separated from all that is good and right, and whole. I know this idea of eternal punishment is an uncomfortable. You know one reason it's uncomfortable? Because we're not sharing our faith with people that don't know Jesus. We'd rather just think they're okay. They've just made a choice. And they have been given a God-ordained choice to decide what they will do. But we have been given a God-ordained command to make sure they know about Jesus to make sure that they've had the opportunity to make a choice of what they will do with him. In fact, many of us act like we don't believe in hell because we have no sense of urgency for the people we love and know to hear about Christ. But God is eminently just. We long for justice in the way we're treated. We should also long for justice the way all God's children are treated. And, and our hope for justice is ultimately fulfilled when Jesus comes back. And he'll make all things right. And when people are confronted with the risen Savior, when, when people come into the context of the throne room of heaven, never once do they defend themselves. 
When you see the resurrected Christ in heaven, like Revelation chapter 1 and other passages of Scripture, you know what always happens? They fall on their face before Him. I got nothing to say because you alone are right. On that day, He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And that includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Has the injustice of the world in which we live, the unfairness of the world in which we live, the, the ruthlessness of the world in which we live stolen your joy, your hope, and your perseverance for doing what God has called you to do? Have, have we, as followers of Christ, figuratively hidden in our cave where we can be safe, where we can't be misquoted, or get involved in the dirtiness of humanity? Let me tell you something. I'm going to give you a secret. Don't tell anyone this, but when you get involved in serving Christ, it's messy. Because not, this doesn't apply to any of you but people are messy. Uh, even the, the, the most purely you seek to serve Christ and the most purely you seek to do what is right, there are times when it's messy and you'll get hurt and you'll be treated unfairly and people will say ugly things about you because that's what they did to Jesus. But we serve a God who's right and just, and, and we should not be defined by the brokenness and the injustice of the world in which we live. We should be defined by the perfections of the God whom we serve. We shouldn't get our narrative from what we see on cable news. Our narrative should come from the Word of God and the the, the righteousness of God and the work of Christ, our, our, our understanding of life should be rooted ultimately and completely in who He is, not in what we hear all around us or the disappointments we see. In other words, we gain our strength to keep going because we serve a God who is so much better than the mess we live in. And so when the fatigue of the injustice in which we live begins to cause us to lose heart, we, what do we do? We fix our eyes on Jesus. Because He demonstrates what real mercy and grace is. What true righteousness is. And when we face Him, there's nothing else to say. Don't grow weary. The outline says I've got one more point and I've got one minute. So you're strengthened by prayer, verses 11 and 12. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you. See, we've got to pray for each other because it is discouraging that our God may count you worthy of His calling and that by His power He may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act promoted by your faith. That, that he, will, he will give you strength, that He will use what you do, that he, he will 
multiply your efforts. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified. Notice, notice that the ultimate result is always the glorification of Christ. What is the chief end of man? If you grew up Presbyterian, you know the answer to that. To enjoy God and glorify Him forever. According to His grace that He had in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I, I know how hard it is when you encounter the unfairness of life. And so I'm praying for you. But don't forget, Jesus is fair. He knows your heartache. He knows your brokenness. He knows the mistreatment. And he knows your sin. And he's declared you righteousness, righteous by giving you his. But he will always be fair. And someday, he will return to earth and, according to Scripture, split the Mount of Olives. <laughs> I can't wait to see that. And every knee will bow, whether in heaven or earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that we want fairness, but we're not always fair. We want justice, but especially when it applies to us. And Father, we confess that we can be pretty energetic when things go well, but when things are hard and we're treated unfairly, we can lose heart and forget to look at you. Teach us to base our confidence not in our efforts, for our salvation or our work, but place it solely in you. Teach us to cause your justice to define our reality more than the injustice of the world around us. And give us a heart to live out that justice, that purity of faith, that righteousness, that hope, that love, to demonstrate just how true you are. In Jesus' name, amen.